Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. All right, and welcome back to B-Side. Tom here, and today we're going to talk about specifically the streets of crocodiles. And uh, I wanted to talk about this. I mean, this is the movie I brought to the shorts. Um, and I, I think there's a lot in here that I, I'm interested in discussing. And we'll, we'll see how it goes. And I think what we're going to cover today on B-Side is uh, looking at the sort of effect that uh, of Schopenhauer or Schopenhauer's thoughts on this movie. Or, or better yet, how this movie actualizes, at least in terms of the screen, some of these ideas that we might see in Schopenhauer. Now, leading with Schopenhauer, however, the, the scholars are going to be looking at, they are, are not just Schopenhauer, obviously. I mean, we have uh, uh, Suzanne Buchan, who I believe I mentioned in the episode. If, if I didn't, I'm sorry. Um, she has had two works out on the Quay Brothers, um, all, uh, she also has done her uh, doctoral dissertation on them, so and on their their puppet films. So she is a person I'm going to be quoting a lot. Um, we're also going to be looking at Bruno Schultz, um, and as well as Mikhail Oklot, who I believe is a uh, Slavic professor over at Brown. And so those are the things we're going to cover. Um, and so a lot of these kind of Schopenhauerian ideas are not original to me. This seems to be part of what a few critics who look at the Quay brothers are discussing. And I just kind of want to bring some of their, their critical work forward now because it's, it's pretty cool and I think it speaks well to the film and I think it makes the film make sense. Um, and so... I'm going to start on two quotes from the Quay brothers themselves, and uh, this is this is the first. So the, the Quays remark that they quote grounded streets of crocodiles around Schultz's very specific treatment of matter, certainly metaphysical notions of degraded life, and his mythopoetic accession of the everyday. Okay, and. End quote. And so there that Schultz is kind of suggesting that matter itself has a vitality in and of itself, and that the non-human vitality of matter is really at the heart of Street of Crocodiles and Quay short films more broadly. And I think this is a really good quote to start on. Because it brings in what is essentially Schopenhauerian, if I'm, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, about the, the Quay Brothers material. And just to remind you again about Street of Crocodiles, if you heard our episode, or if you've, you've seen the movie, or if you um, uh, have heard the episode, just don't remember the movie very well, or the episode very well, Street of Crocodiles it starts with a, a kind of live action thing of a man going into a theater and looking into 
a box and then we we jump down into what's in the box and there's a, a kind of a puppet in there and a stop motion film of about 20 minutes occurs in which we see the puppet interact with a number of things at one point these other puppets that look like babies they kind of look like baby dolls uh, with half heads the top of their head is popped off um, they kind of grab the man and take his head off uh, another time we see um, these screws kind of come up out of the ground and sort of dance around like little dogs so it is very much invested in these these little items these little trinkets and they're also very dirty they're they're not um the the whole set is kind of dirty there's got there's crap everywhere the the props themselves are look a little half formed or used or left behind the street itself of the title that that the puppet is walking down seems like something out of um out of soviet eastern europe it, it looks uh run down it looks gray um and there's a, a sense a real deep sense of pessimism of kind of creepiness too because these things you know they they don't appear to be alive they have lifelike attributes in the sense that they move around and they appear to look at things and and what have you but they move in uncanny ways they move in very non-human ways even when they're representing humans and so when when the quays look to schultz who wrote the short story street of crocodiles and a short story collection of the same name when they're they're looking to schultz and schultz is writing about what he sees as a non-human vitality in the stuff of the world then it seems like the quays are respecting that even to the degree where the car the objects the puppets that represent humans are given a non-human vitality right it's not like puppet theater where you know the uh, a, a kind of like a spirit of a person comes into the the puppet and then a great puppeteer can make this thing seem like an independent entity and that's that's the skill of a great puppeteer and that's uh, you know the, the person who does that the best is is the best puppeteer etc um here it seems like the idea is a reminder of the the physical non-animated aspect of this thing and that the, yet yet despite the fact that it's non-human it is still vital in the sense of it has a, a kind of vitality it has a you know a will to be in the world and that's the kind of disjunction that lies at the, the heart of this movie. And it makes it really, really interesting. Um, and here's another quote from the Quays. This is on the mu music of the movie. Quote, the final music, which we always refer to, between each other, of course, as the broken automation waltz, suggests to us that the zone of the streets of crocodiles, that it is too hard to break down, falter like the music, unhinge, and hence, the screws which, by their nature, hold things together, should unscrew, desert, and flee their mooring, including the mourning of the puppets themselves. End quote. So that's a, 
you know, that's an interesting little tidbit there. Um, what I like about that is I don't know which of the brothers said it. Stephen and Timothy Quay are, are, are twin brothers. And so very often you'll read quotes from them and you go like, which brother said this? And, uh, and sometimes it isn't clear. I think this was Stephen, but honestly, I don't remember. Uh, but what's interesting here is that, that it's about the it's about things falling apart, right? It's it's about the abandonment of of the puppets. It's you know that they flee, including the moorings of the puppets themselves. That that it all sort of falls apart, um, and that this zone, this space, is you know is a place where things don't work out. And I you know I think that is is really a great way to think of it because again it has that that contradiction right it has that vitality of the non-organic right the 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 life inside the spirit of life inside these non-organic things in conflict with their degraded nature their non-human appearance um their placement in a zone that ceases to hold things together uh, and, and there's that that interesting pull and it almost makes you invest more in this idea of vitality and everything right because if even the screws that abandon this degraded zone have a sort of um, presence in the world let's say then you know kind of everything does right um, and and that presence, you know, it's it's kind of a great thing to think about because everything organic, inorganic has a has a certain vitality in the world, right? It has, you know, th this will to to be in the world. Yet at the same time, um, that vitality doesn't prevent or save you from degradation, right? That it's it's both uplifting and it also reminds you of how vulnerable that, that kind of vitality is. You know, if you throw some garbage away, you know, if you take those screws out of the set and throw them away, you whatever, they're screws. But if you think of them as having a non-human vitality, then is there a sort of mini tragedy in every action? I mean, you know, it... it really isn't, um, it really is, I would say, kind of double-edged in, in that sense. Okay, so I want to uh, now jump into, into the movie more clearly. Um, and so this is, uh, this is another quote from the Quays. This is um, them writing about Bruno Schultz's story. Um, quote, we grounded the film around Schultz's very specific treatment of matter, certain metaphysical notions of degraded life, as found in the treatise on Taylor's dummies, end quote. So who is Bruno Schultz? What is the treatise on Taylor's dummies? Bruno Schultz is a Polish writer. He was born in 1892 
He died at age 50 in 1942. And he wrote a few novels and um, some short stories. Uh, and he was, uh, a lot of his works were uh, lost in the, the Holocaust. And, um, and Schultz had spent the 40s in, um, in a ghetto. Uh, he, he's Jewish, or, he, or was Jewish, so he was he was forced in, uh, in a ghetto. Um, he wasn't placed. I don't believe he was placed in a, a concentration camp. Um, there was a Gestapo officer who uh, protected him, a Nazi Gestapo officer who protected him because they liked his work, or this, this officer liked his work, you know. And uh, Schultz painted a mural for him in order to, to stay alive, and. In 1942, Schultz walked through the Aryan quarter of, of the city he was in, and a Gestapo officer shot him. Um, now, this seems to have been a murder in revenge, um, because the, the other Gestapo officer who was offering Schultz protection had apparently killed this Gestapo officer's favorite Jewish person, um, a dentist who he was protecting. So, um, you know, th th that's what happened, and that's the tragic end of his life at age 50. Um, his body of work, consequently, is very small and, uh, however, quite impactful. And uh, Street of Crocodiles tends to be the, the short story collection that gets the most attention. Um, one of the stories in there is, as I said before, Treatise on Taylor's Dummies or the Second Book of Genesis. Uh, and I'm going to read an excerpt from this, but I, I first want to situate it a little bit. Street of Crocodiles is about a, really a, a boy's mother and, and the boy's father, and really the boy's father... Uh, kind of dominates the stories. The stories are, are told from um, the perspective of the boy, a first-person perspective of the boy, living in this sort of degraded Polish city. And uh, the boy's father is kind of um, prone to flights of fancy, as you'll see in this this bit I read here. And it's interesting um, because his kind of flights of fancy latch onto objects and seeing vitality in objects. So here's a quote from this, this treatise on Taylor's dummies or the second book of Genesis. Quote, the demiurge, said my father, has had no monopoly of creation, for creation is the privilege of all spirits. Matter has been given infinite fertility, inexhaustible vitality, and at the same time, a seductive power of temptation, which invites us to create as well. In the depth of matter, indistinct smiles are shaped, tensions build up, attempts at form appear. The whole of matter pulsates with infinite possibilities that send dull shivers through it. Waiting for the life-giving breath of the spirit, it is endlessly in motion. It entices us with a thousand sweet, soft, round shapes which it blindly dreams up within itself. 
deprived of all initiative, indulgently acquiescent, pliable like a woman, submissive to every impulse. It is a territory outside any law, open to all kinds of charlatans and dilettante, a domain of abuses and dubious demiurgical manipulations. Matter is the most passive and defenseless essence in the cosmos. Anyone can mold it and shape it. It obeys everyone. All attempts at organizing matter are transient and temporary, easy to reverse and to dissolve. There is no evil in reducing life to other and newer forms. Homicide is not a sin. It is sometimes a necessary violence on resistance and ossified forms of existence which have ceased to be amusing. In the interests of an important and fascinating experiment, it can even become meritorious. Here is the starting point for a new apologia for sadism. End quote. And that's not, the Street of Crocodiles is a story adjacent to that, where the, the boy and his father go into the street and see the, you know, different items there. But we could see with that the idea of matter as being something, all matter, everything, everywhere, as transcending human consciousness. It seems to be that the idea of, of the intellect, be it rational or um, emotional, I, I don't think Schultz is uh, denigrating necessarily the, the rational kind of empirical gathering intellect. I think, I don't think he's degrading the intellect at all, but I think he is placing the consciousness of things, the, the conscious body of matter, which hopefully is us listening and speaking, um, in a position, in a non-privileged position vis-a-vis -vis unconscious matter or matter itself, the abstraction of matter, the idea of matter. Um, you know, this is why he says homicide is not a crime, uh, considering how he died. It's you know, this is, this is deeply and sadly ironic, but homicide is not a crime because he's not privileging human life over other types of matter because he's not privileging consciousness, right? And you could see for people like the Quays who make their living uh, generating puppet theater why this is incredibly appealing, right? Because um, his form of uh, Schultz, that is, Schultz's form of, of gentle sadism, um, for them actually can be translated into beautiful art, into non-human, human representations of puppets, right? And, and, and that little boy puppet and the kind of the puppets with no, no tops on their heads. Um, those things, though they look human, can, when in the hands of the quays, become non-human. And the, the leaning in and leaning out we as audience members do is the desire to import human, human capacities, emotions, instincts onto the non-human. I mean, we do this with dogs and cats all the time. However, 
the, the Quay's skill is in making you recognize the materiality of what you're, you're seeing and therefore kind of pulling you back, right? Or, or you're sitting back. Um, you're, you're leaning in towards the human, right? Towards the light, this, this consciousness. And then you're, you're recognizing that there actually is no consciousness there. It is all degraded life. And you lean back, right? You, you move back. I think the, the time in the film that happened for me was at one point there's a, a piece of meat. I think it's, it looks like a slice of liver. I, I honestly don't know what, what meat it is. Um, uncooked meat that the dolls who have only half heads, um, they take and they wrap it up with pins. And it's, I found it deeply gross. <laughs> um, but the what, what you're seeing there is is flesh. I mean, it's, it's literal meat, right? L formerly living meat that's being brought into this this parade of objects, and it. I mean, it's shocking when you see it because you, it. You know, first of all, it looks gross. KJ says it looks good. It, it doesn't. It looks gross. But at the same time, it's the first thing we see. They used to have what we call life or what, what Schultz might call non-degraded life. And that was a point for me where I sat back, right? Because I was leaning in, I was accepting the, the consciousnesses of the puppets, right? I was, or I was placing that on them and seeing that actual meat, that dirty meat made me recognize the, the thingness, the objectness of what I was looking at. Yeah. Um, and, and so going back to Schultz again, Schultz calls a being who is half organic and pseudo-fauna and pseudo-flora um, the generatio equivoca. And, and what this means is something like self-production or self-reproduction. Um, the equivalent generator, right? Like like generating its equivalent, right? So that's self-reproduction, almost like a, a asexual reproduction. Um, I mean, it's not, the, the term isn't referring specifically to like amoebas or, or something like that, but you could think of something that creates itself as generatio equivoca, okay? What we're then seeing is something kind of, um, philosophically anyway, I think poised between kind of pre-enlightenment and pre-positivist views of the world and then more positivist, more enlightenment-era views of the world. And, and what I mean by this is the, the kind of enlightenment-era way of looking at things involves, and this is in true of everyone, I mean, using the term enlightenment, I'll just put a footnote right here. Using the term enlightenment is always dangerous. It's There's a number of different enlightenments. They all didn't occur in the 18th century either, but we're talking about the 18th century one. And even there, the German enlightenment is very different from the Scottish enlightenment, which has a lot of difference, differences from the, the what's going on in France at the time. So with the caveat that the term enlightenment is a muddy one, I'm, I'm making this, uh, this reading of, of the movie, um, that the idea of, of self-reproduction 
in which something kind of can recreate itself and which the inorganic material can just kind of transform into a new type of vital substance is, I would say, something that is looking away from Enlightenment-era thoughts. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll start with what I'm kind of defining as Enlightenment-era thoughts. What I mean by this, and what I mean by um, a kind of a, a non- or pre-positivist view of the world, is that the Enlightenment sort of offers us a rational, if not mechanistic, explanation for everything going on in the planet. And if you can see the ingredients and see the forces at play, presumably you will be able to predict the end of the show, so to speak. And the object of humans from here on out is to, you know, learn how to... Um, learn how to make those predictions, right? Learn the formulas, learn the, the mechanistic universe. It's it's flowing out of Newton in one sense. And again, this is not all Enlightenment thinkers, but, you know, whatever, right? Think of, of the way I'm conceiving of the Enlightenment as, um, as that which comes from Isaac Newton. Positivists, they, um, Auguste Comte is the, the, the thinker most associated with this term, um, they're looking for kind of a scientific means of confirming things in the world that you would have to, you know, kind of use a, an empirical standard to say what is actually happening in the world. With the Quays and why I think, and, and with Schultz and why I think this idea of uh, um, generatio equivoca is not either enlightenment or, or positivistic is that the transformation of matter from one thing into another um, is, in a certain sense, non-predictable. It, it can't be narrowed down or controlled. Its transformation um, from one thing into a, another thing and the, having this kind of underlining vitality that, that can't be measured. This is another thing why it's non-positivistic. Positivists are always looking for the measurements um, and that, that essentially what allows for this alchemic transformation from one thing to another in the Quay's world and in Schultz's world is this underlining vitality that exists in all things organic and inorganic that... Um, that allows it to move from from one kind of existence into another. It's why, again, I, I you know I love this idea from Schultz that homicide is no longer a crime. It's just transfer it, the, because the matter doesn't go away. The matter of the body is still there, and the vitality, consequently, is not in the soul or the spirit or the brain or the consciousness or whatever. The the vitality, the soul, quote unquote. I'm losing using that term loosely is in the matter itself. And so it just becomes something new. It transforms. And this is, I think, very important for understanding the Quay's aesthetic. Because I, I think, again, this, this metaphor of sitting forward and leaning back, I think the reason why people who watch Quay Brothers films have that response, and I don't think I'm the, on, the only one, 
I think it's because they are recognizing the, you know, the the fact that something that appears to be human is transforming into something that is non-human and or something that appears organic is now becoming inorganic and it's it's very surprising and it and, you know at first you think you kind of got it you understand it you recognize it um you can rationalize it and then the puppet acts in a way that doesn't seem to make sense that it, it, it's moving in a kind of inauthentic let's say bad term but inauthentic way of moving um and it's really interesting if you've ever been in a movie theater where they play quay brothers films i i was a number of years ago this is right after christopher nolan made that like short eight or nine minute documentary about them and that was touring around and it came to, to new york city while i was living there and the theater has that experience when you're in the theater it has that experience because of of the people in there with them and um in there with you and it it's really is it, it's interesting also because when you start to recognize the inorganic as inorganic right you're no you're no longer uh, transposing a um a kind of human life onto these things there actually is even a kind of sense of collective boredom, <laughs> which, I, I mean, these movies can be 10 to 20 minutes long, so they're not very long. But there's a lot of also repetition um, that goes on in, in the Quay Brothers, which also allows you to see the materiality of the thing, right? The, the non-human nature of it. that You know, the, the vitality of the inorganic ends up becoming manifest when uh, an action occurs kind of over and over again. That's not a particularly human thing to do. Kind of conscious beings don't just do the same action over and over again. And it's not exactly repetition, um, but it's something like that, right? It, it's close to repetition, and there's almost a sense of once you get through the kind of shock of what's going on, there's a sense of kind of relaxation and almost boredom. <laughs> and it, it's really interesting. Uh, but we'll move on here um, to Mikhail Oklot. Um, and he sees the Quay's work and, and Schultz's work. I think he's actually, I think he's talking more specifically about Schultz, but as a Schopenhauerian will to life an infinite eagerness to bring life into existence. Um, however, the, the things that come into being don't imply a soul. They don't, they don't perform a soul um, the way animation often does. I mean, we've kind of talked about this already, this idea of, uh, what I was trying to say, the, the idea of where the soul is, right? It's not in the consciousness. It's not animating. Um, and anima is the, the Greek word for soul, by the way, but it's in the material and allows for this kind of will to life. Um, Oklaut is bringing that in from Schopenhauer to persist in these, these puppets. And so I'm going to quote right now actually from Schopenhauer because we just brought in a new name and Schopenhauer is a big deal, the biggest deal that we've, we've encountered in this episode so far. Um, and read a little bit of Schopenhauer. Um, 
And so this is Schopenhauer's view on generatio equivoca, what we've been talking about. So uh, Schopenhauer regarded generatio equivoca as, quote, infinite eagerness, ease, and exuberance with which the will to live presses impetuously into existence. Um, Dot, dot, dot. Under millions of forms everywhere and at every moment, by means of fertilization and germs, and indeed, where these are lacking, by means of generatio equivoca, seizing every opportunity, greedily grasping for itself every material capable of life, and then again, least us cast a glance at its awful alarm and wild rebellion, when in any individual phenomenon it is to pass out of existence, especially where this occurs with distinct consciousness." End quote. And this is from um, this is from chapter uh, twenty eight, characterization of the will to live. All right. So, so what does that all mean? <laughs> so who is who is Schopenhauer, and what does that long quote there mean? So Schopenhauer, Arthur Schopenhauer, his years are seventeen eighty eight um, to eighteen sixty. He was born. Um, in the Polish Commonwealth, and he died in in Frankfurt in Germany. Um, Not quite Germany the country yet, but a a German confederacy. And Schopenhauer really saw himself as working within the, uh, the, the Kantian way of doing things. And that's Immanuel Kant, German philosopher. And, um, what, what Kant saw, and we talked about this on a B-side a while ago, but what Kant saw was that the world is sort of shaped by our mental apparati, and that there's these categories of the mind, and they shape the world in order to understand it. So time and space would be categories of the mind, right? And so we have those in us, and when we look out at the world, we categorize the information that we see as according to a number of these categories. Time and space is one of them. So Kant would say, you know, that that we understand the world in terms of time because we are kind of at the center of the world. Uh, Kant referred to this as his Copernican revolution, right? He was putting um, human consciousness at the center of philosophical understanding. And Schopenhauer sees himself as continuing this, and he sees, you know, the world as representation, right? That this is the the kind of term he uses. He says, the world is my representation. Um, Everything there is for cognition, um, exists simply as an object in relation to a subject. It represents to a subject, um, a representation to a subject. So everything is subject-dependent. Um, and so that's, that is where Schopenhauer is coming from. That's kind of the, the basis for his thought, right? The world is presented to us by our consciousness. Um, and so consciousness is a, a major framework, but so is matter. So all we have is consciousness and matter, um, However, the world is distorted, and there is this fundamental reality known as will that 
is underneath and underlying everything. This will that's sort of through everything and in everything and, and kind of beneath everything is true of trees and animals and people and rocks and dirt and tapeworms and, and whatever, right? It's everywhere. Right? The self appears to us as the internal passionate self, right? We we think of ourselves as having an internal function, right? There, there's something in us and we, you know, we, we laugh and we smile and we look at things and we feel things. Um, this kind of internal passion he saw as the, the manifestation of the will in us. And he suggests that the rest of the world also has an inner side and will is his term for this. And so he goes even further and says that will is the fundamental reality. And wills, so two different wills from two different uh, discrete objects, are related to each other through the principle of sufficient reason. Uh, according to Schopenhauer, there's a reason for each particular thing. Nothing stands on its own. So everything is, is reasoned out. Um, there are necessary connections, right? So if, if something is doing something for a reason, it's connecting to other things in order to, to do that thing. And various types of things that are related in an orderly fashion. Individual entities stand in a relationship to one another, um, and the, the individual entity defends itself against other entities. Things are interconnected, but they have a miserable relationship with one another because they kind of feed upon each other. Um, you know, the, these different ideals, these, these, this will in everything is sort of feeding upon other things to survive. And this comports with his idea of consciousness, right? Because... Um, if consciousness is kind of shaping the world and uh, if we are looking out at the world and sort of relating to it by our consciousness, that is our consciousness are shaping our experience, then your kind of inner life is really making the world for you, right? And so therefore the kind of fundamental reality is your will contacting another will and but for schopenhauer this is um this is ultimately a very pessimistic thing because as they're relating to each other there's sort of a limit i believe to how much will there is and so they start to kind of defend themselves against being kind of absorbed into a, a general will and so they, they want to kind of feed off each other. They want to defend themselves against other entities. There's a kind of sense of individualism that's kind of popping up in, in these wills, in these interconnected wills. And so everything that lives is troubled. If you want to be free, then you need to resign your will. Now, this is a hard thing to do. It happens in the case of, of let's say, saints who see there's no kind of real benefit in craving things and, you know, against the benefits of other humans. So if you're craving something, if you, you want something really badly, you kind of want to absorb its will, right? This is this interconnectedness that, that, that Schopenhauer is very pessimistic about. And certain classes of people, and, and saints are one of them, are people who are kind of recognizing that there's no overall gain in the world through this craving 
and therefore they sort of resign the will. That doesn't mean they die, they still have this kind of inner life, but they resign the the directedness of the will towards an aim, which therefore detracts from or is in conflict with another will. Um, contemplating something for its own beauty is the pure will as subject. Um, the self is the self without practical considerations, pure will. So if, if you're looking at something, if you're thinking about something, if your mind is turning in on itself, then the self, the you, becomes the subject, right? And then it, then it becomes pure will. It's not will towards something, it's will towards yourself. And in that, that time, in that space, the mind becomes pure will and willness, and then we begin to, to kind of move towards universality, right? Because it's no longer kind of consuming other wills it's, it's sort of self-reflecting and self-generating. Um, and therefore, each object becomes not that discrete object, but an instance of the universal. Uh, and you know, now we're moving into this kind of uh, platonic idea of ideals, um, that type of thing. But, but Schopenhauer imagines that all experiences in this process uh, become a single one, a universal experience joined by this aesthetic sublimation of beauty, which leaves the self as willless, that is, without will. In aesthetics and the arts, we enjoy reality as human beings in the shape of kind of a, a platonic idea, and the will manifests itself as, as natural kinds. The will invents things for our intellect, right? So again, this is that will that's going out into the world and taking things and consuming things. Well, if you're an artist, if you're in aesthetics and you, you, know, you want to make something, you got to kind of participate in that process and that kind of uh, pessimistic process. Um, but these things then become the full manifestation of the will. Right? The objects themselves are not perfect manifestations of the will, as most things are flawed, everything's flawed. But the aesthetic experience of that object and the contemplation of, of that object um, allows us to see beyond the flaws of the artistic object and into the universal thing, the universal bit of, com of, of contemplation. And so... Um, and so what we have there with, with Schopenhauer in, uh, in the Quay brothers is these artists who are, the artists being the Quay brothers, uh, who are taking really kind of flawed matter, recognizing even this has a kind of innerness, a willness, um, putting on this, this great, artistic display filled with flaws in the sense of the, the things they find are dirty and, and, and gross and kind of, they all look like covered in dust. I don't know if they actually are, but they have the sense of being broken down, right? These are the flaws. And yet in that process of leaning in and leaning back, right? In that process of seeing the meat and being really grossed out as I was, um, what ends up happening is the mind begins to contemplate that which you are seeing and it turns in on itself. And so while other forms of entertainment, um, maybe these other short films we watched, 
the the will in the Schopenhauerian sense starts to go out towards something in a kind of consumptive uh, consumptive motion here in in the quays I think part of their their aesthetic is that sense of contemplation that arises out of the kind of uh, recognition of the flawed material aesthetic objects in front of you. Okay? And I, I just want to end on a Schultz quote. And this is a quote actually from Street of Crocodiles, from the story that, that this movie is named from. Quote, There is no dead matter. Lifeless is only a disguise behind which hides unknown forms of life. The range of these forms is infinite, and their shades and nuances limitless. End quote. This has been B-Side. Thank you very much. <laughs>